0: So the reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 17 through to 34. You can find it on the Church Bibles um, on page 1,152. So, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together it is not the Lord's supper you eat for when you are eating some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from God what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and ill, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions.
1: If you've got Bibles, keep them open. Uh, That's the bit of the Bible we're going to be thinking about, looking at together, Uh, so it would be good to have it handy. Let me pray for us as we uh, get stuck into this together. Father, we want to thank you so much that you're a God who wants to be known, a God who wants to be remembered a God who wants to make himself clear and so we pray now that as we read your word and focus on it together that we'd be learning from it that we'd be growing from it that we'd recognize ways perhaps that we've got things wrong and that we'd be ready to change that we would see things that are glorious about the Lord Jesus and be ready to celebrate and worship those things in Jesus name amen well, last week we were talking about signs, weren't we? And, and how they aren't always clear. Well, here's a few more of those. Um, take this one, for example. If you didn't know what that sign meant, what would that sign mean? No holding hands allowed in this area. No, come on. Somebody who's done their driving theory test. Who? What's? Uh, who? What is this one? That's a bit scary, isn't it? <laughs> Beware of pedestrians. In the road. That's what that one's about. So I like, oh yeah, no, no, I knew that. I knew that. I knew that. Um, this one, perhaps, is slightly more straightforward. <laughs> uh, genuine, real one from, from the States. Now, it's clear what it means that there's falling cows. But what am I supposed to do about it as a driver? How am I supposed to avoid this? And, and how many times did it happen before they had to put a sign up about it? Apparently, this is the sign that is most baffling to Americans driving in this country. What does that mean? To turn left if you are a swashbuckling pirate, is that what it means? No, it's, it's directing you to the site of a historic battlefield. So, but it's one of those things, if you know it, you know it, and if you don't, you would look at it and go, okay, I'm going to have a guess at what's happening. I probably will misunderstand what's happening. And that is true of the two signs that uh, the Lord Jesus gave to the church of baptism And the Lord's supper; these activities that are signs, they're symbols that are there to point us to the central truths of the gospel. But they're things which we do, which we look at and see. And so we would, if we didn't have an explanation, say, well, I have no idea what that's about. And so we'd start making things up. Well, I imagine it's about this. We'd go through the motions. We'd come up with all kinds of things uh, that would give us wrong ideas about the central things of the gospel, as if we sort of misread that brown sign and turn left into a war zone. You know, it's an absolute disaster if we get these signs wrong. Last week, we looked at the sign of baptism. This week, we're looking at the Lord's Supper. i trying to understand how this is a glorious picture of the gospel, and yet one that can go so wrong. The bit of the Bible uh, that Vicky just read for us It's gone so wrong, so out of whack that it's now unrecognizable. So take a look at verse 20. Paul says to them, So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. Now, whatever it was they thought they were doing, that was not the Lord's supper anymore. It's become somebody else's supper, somebody else's very dysfunctional dinner. I don't know if you can imagine this being said of us. Imagine somebody in authority coming and saying, in the following things, talking about the Lord's Supper, I have no praise for you for your meetings do more harm than good. That's quite a thing to say, isn't it? It would be better if you guys just stopped meeting, stopped doing this. That's how, poss- how wrong it's possible to be. Now, I don't want that to be us. I'm sure you don't want that to be us. I want this day's meeting to do us lots of good. And so that's what we're going to be thinking about today, about whether the Lord's Supper is something that is always confused you or or just seems very alien, or if it's something you're really familiar with and and you could do it in your sleep, today can do us lots of good as we get to grips with this sign of what Jesus is all about. So if what they were doing was not the Lord's Supper, uh, what is the Lord's Supper? Well, the first thing uh, from our passage is that the Lord's Supper is a sign of Christ's death. The Lord's Supper is a sign of Christ's death. Take a look at verse 26. It says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the meal is saying something. It's proclaiming Christ's death. There's all kinds of things about Jesus that we might want to celebrate. Things that he did we might want to commemorate. Uh, do something about his birth or his healings or his teachings or his miracles or something like that but the thing he says no do this regularly I do not want you to forget is his death it's so obvious that we we can miss how important it is that the death of Jesus is the heart of Christianity and as we take the Lord's Supper that is part of helping us to keep the death of Jesus right at the heart of things as we come back over and over and over on that most central thing, that Jesus died for our sins. The very first Lord's Supper, ironically we often call the Last Supper, don't we? But, but verse 23 takes us back to that night. It takes us back to that night, as it says the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, on that particular night he set in motion, not just that meal then, but what would happen in all of those afterwards. We're invited to recreate the evening, to to reenact that meal, that meal at which Jesus taught those disciples what was about to happen. Now, we know what happened next, that he was going to die, but they didn't know that. They hadn't quite twigged, even though he told them lots of times. And on that night, it says, he took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Now, that is so familiar, but that is quite a thing to say, isn't it? Imagine you sort of say, this pencil. This pencil is me. This pencil is my body. And then going like, like that. This is me. That is saying something massive, isn't it? This is my body. He gets a bit of bread. Rip. The meal is, is a picture of his death at the hands of brutal soldiers as he's torn, as he's broken. The Lord's Supper is a sign of his death. But when he says, this is my body, what does he actually mean? That's been a big issue uh, through history. Um, There was a sheet over the table earlier, and and somebody commented, oh, is there a body under there? And I think, well, that's the question, isn't it? Is there a body under there? (laughs) Is it literally the body of Christ, or is it the same stuff that the baker made? Uh, When debating this issue in in the 16th century, uh, Martin Luther famously countered his opponent, who probably I'd agree with, definitely I'd agree with, um, had this lengthy argument. And Martin Luther countered that by just sweeping everything off the table, writes sitting at the table in chalk, this is my body. As if that settles the argument. And then said, so, well, you've got anything to add? Underline the word is. This is my body. But it's not as simple as that, is it? When Jesus said, I am the gate, was he actually a gate? Does Jesus made wood? Does he have hinges? No, it's a a metaphor, isn't it? And same here, the the bread is his body in sign form, in symbol form. If you stick it under the microscope, it's still bread. So unlike what um, Roman Catholics believe, or even Lutherans, the bread doesn't change. It is a sign. We look at why Jesus tells us to do it. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And remembering is more than just thinking about him. We'll see that later on. But the purpose of it, the purpose of the bread, is to bring to mind the body of Jesus, not to bring the body of Jesus dragged back into the room somehow. The bread is a sign of his death. Jesus is present among us by his spirit. That's how he is present with us always. And the wine is also a sign of his death. That's what happens in the next bit of the meal. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. So, if the bread represents his body, the cup represents his blood, and that's probably a, a clearer picture, isn't it? The red liquid is a bit more like blood than bread is like a body. But again, isn't that a vivid picture? To take a, a bottle of wine and say, "This is my blood," glug, 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 glug and pour it out like that. Because it's the pouring out that's that's in view here. So in uh, in Matthew 26, when Jesus is setting up the meal, he says, "This is the blood of my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins." So when we're seeing the blood here, we're seeing blood poured out on the cross for our forgiveness. Blood is a really big deal in the Bible. Throughout the Bible, cover to cover, blood is required. To deal with sin, because sin is that serious. When we reject God, we ignore God, we break his rules, we spurn his love, that is enormous. When he's infinitely worthy, we were made to worship him and we don't. Sin is staggeringly serious. And so the punishment it deserves is death, is blood. But in the Old Testament, God provided a way for sinners To live. Those sacrifices, those animals. Been uh, reading a really interesting book about sort of going through the actually how would it have been. And I mean the smells and all that kind of stuff. But um, really, really interesting. And just talking about all the animals and how the animals would be chosen and then brought out. And then the priests who uh, on the Day of Atonement are wearing pure white robes. I mean pure white robes and you're about to kill an animal. That seems a bad idea. But it's a picture, isn't it? And they're there and they, they lay their hands on the head of this animal and confess the sins over this animal, confess the sins of the people. They're identifying this animal with those people, putting their sins on this beast. Everything we've done on this thing and then killing it. And it's blood poured out, poured out on the altar, splattered on the mercy. There is so much blood Hebrews puts it like this, and it's sort of summarizing the whole thing. It says, in fact, the law requires nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It is deliberately very gruesome because sin is so serious. When God's people were first gathered together, given the Ten Commandments, God sealed the deal with blood. So Exodus 24, they sacrificed bulls, and then we read, Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. Do you recognize that phrase? This is the blood of the covenants. That old covenant, that arrangement, that agreement with God about how they'd relate to him, that was all sealed in blood. A covenant with all sorts of regulations and rituals and sacrifices, and because the people kept sinning, the blood keeps flowing But even with the sacrifices, people still broke that covenant. They ruined that relationship. And yet God promised, instead of just to ditch them, promised a new covenant. He promises a new way of relating to him, which is going to have one sacrifice, one sacrifice once and for all to deal with sin. That was the hope. That's what they were looking for. And then Jesus comes, and as he comes to his death, he says... It's my blood. It's going to be my death, not a lamb, not a bull, not a goat. It's going to be my death that takes the place of the people, that takes the sin, takes the guilt, takes the punishments. His blood is the blood of the new covenant. His death is the only sacrifice we need. So whenever we come back and we talk about Jesus' blood, that is supposed to be dealing with this, this thing we're supposed to know at the back of our minds. Something is not right. Perhaps when we're weighed down with guilt, we've got a sense that something needs to be done about it. or Something has been done about it. The blood of Jesus has been shed to cleanse us from our sin. His blood has been spilt to deal with that punishment. And his death's enough. It's enough to bring us to God now. We've got no... Problem between us anymore, no spot, no blemish, no issue. And this meal is supposed to be a reminder of that that we are in this new covenant relationship with Him because of His blood. The cup we drink proclaims that, declares that, that Jesus' death has paid for our sins. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So, whenever we take this, we're celebrating that death, aren't we? We are celebrating that everything's been done, that we're not in the Old Testament anymore and that we're not completely lost and on our own. Instead, Jesus has done it all. The Lord's Supper is a sign of Christ's death. But it's it's not just sort of a sign on the wall, a sign sort of out there to look at, uh, admire or something like that. It's something we participate in, isn't it? It's something we do. And for that reason, there's more going on. It's not just a a sign of Christ's death. It's a sign of our faith. The Lord's Supper is a sign of our faith. It's it's a sign of our faith in Jesus' death for us. We saw earlier, didn't we? When we have the meal, we proclaim the Lord's death. So it's, it's saying something when we take part in it. And not just saying Jesus died. It's saying, I trust in that. I trust in Jesus' death. The bread and the wine represent Jesus' body, Jesus' blood. Eating, drinking, that represents receiving Jesus, doesn't it? Receiving him by faith. It's not a passive thing. It's not just something that's done to you. You reach out and you take it and you put it in your mouth and you consume it. You internalize it. It's not just sort of saying, here's the sign. It's a little model replica of Jesus and we look at it. No, it's a a thing we interact with. We personally take on board And in that way, it's a sign of our faith, isn't it? So Jesus says that when we eat the bread, we're remembering him. We take the cup, we're remembering him. And more than just thinking again about him. So, I mean, you might say, oh, do you remember last week when such and such a thing happened? You can say, oh, yeah, I remember that. And that might be, I mean, I don't care. I can literally I can remember. Or it might be like, yeah, that's great. I remember that. Or it might be kind of, oh, I remember that. I've been trying to forget. It doesn't tell us anything. But Jesus wants more than that. When we're supposed to remember him, that's about honouring him. So we think about that when we have Remembrance Sunday, don't we? That's remembering. It's not just, let's just go over the dates again. It's honouring. And in this case, it's remembering what his death was all about and re-embracing it. So baptism, that's the one-time thing, isn't it? The sign we do once, the start of our Christian walk to declare our faith while the Lord's Supper is that regularly repeated sign. Sometimes people will say, particularly after a baptism, oh, I wish I could get baptised all over again. And say, well, you don't need to. We can take the Lord's Supper over and over and over, though. That repeated way of saying, I still have faith in Jesus. Lord's Supper famously grew out of the Passover meal, didn't it? That's, that's the meal that the disciples were having that night. The annual reminder, God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. His judgment on sin, his judgment passed over them. Everyone who was covered by the blood of the lamb, where a lamb had died instead, God passed over them and he rescued them and commanded them. Right, that's the great rescue. Have a meal regularly to mark that rescue. And so when they did that every year, they weren't just recalling historical facts. They were worshipping To take part in that meal was to praise God for what he did, to identify themselves with God's people as they retell the story and say, yeah, that's me. He did that for me. They're renewing their commitment to this great rescuing God. And so when Jesus is having that meal on the night he was betrayed and he takes the Passover meal and changes the script for thousands of years a certain way and he changes the script to say, no, it's now my death is the thing to remember. Well, that means when we take part, we're doing the same thing, aren't we? We're not just recalling the fact, oh yes, the night he betrayed. We're saying, that was me. That was for me. I trust in Jesus. It's not neutral. Eating and drinking, those are pictures Jesus used to describe faith in him. So John chapter 6, he says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live, live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the world. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day, for my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. So here, when he's, he's saying those things, I don't think he's actually primarily talking about the Lord's Supper, but that idea of saying, look, what I'm doing in my death is, it's not just saying, well, here are some pictures. It's saying, when you eat those, when you drink those, that's a picture of receiving him. Receiving him and all of those benefits. He could have picked anything, couldn't he? He said, right, well, here's, uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to Take your in turns, come up the front and shake hands with someone as a, as a sign of your fellowship with God. Or um, I want you to all make a symbol of the cross to remember my death or something. But no, he makes it a meal. He makes it a meal because it's about nourishment. We need food and drink to survive, don't we? And we need Jesus for eternal life. When we take part, we're acknowledging that. We're saying, I would starve without him. Spiritually speaking, I would die without him. And so when he's offered to us, even if it's just a, a symbol We want to say, yes, please, break me off a piece of that. I need that. Give me a glass of that because I want him. I need him more than I need food, more than I need drink. And a meal as well, it signifies fellowship, doesn't it? Fellowship with God. So we've got this idea of Jesus being the master of the feast. He blesses the food. He passes it out. He invites us to come and dine with him. It's his supper. It's his table and he welcomes anyone who will come to him in faith. So when we eat and we drink, that is us accepting his invitation. RSVPing yes to the gospel. And so in that sense, this is a, this is a spiritual meal, isn't it? This is a really spiritual meal. So uh, the idea that it's just an aid for memory, often that's called memorialism, Uh, that would be probably closest to where I am, but there's another way in which I don't think it's quite sufficient because we aren't just remembering, are we? There is a sense in which Jesus is being offered to us, not literally in the bread and the wine, but no less really by his Spirit. If we eat and we drink, it doesn't do us any spiritual good. It can even do us harm, as we saw. But when we eat and drink with faith, we're feeding on Christ, we're built up in him, we're given strength for the journey. It's a sign of our faith and we are on a journey, aren't we? Our faith uh, doesn't just look backwards to the cross, it looks forwards to glory as well and so does this meal and it says there at the end, doesn't it? For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's an until here, it's a temporary meal. It's a, it's a starter. It's kind of the canapes, if you like, before the, before the main meal, which is coming later. When he dished out the wine at that first supper, he said exactly that, didn't he? Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So when we eat this now, we're looking ahead. If we take part now in this meal, we're signifying, my hope is set then on that feast. I cannot wait for that. The Lord's Supper is a sign of our faith. So what was the problem in Corinth? What had they done so wrong that it wasn't the Lord's Supper anymore? Had they stopped making it about Jesus' death? I don't think they had. There's no evidence of that. Had they stopped making it about uh, faith? I don't think so. The issue was that they ignored... The Lord's Supper being a sign of our unity. The Lord's Supper is a sign of our unity as well. It isn't just about the vertical us and God. It's the horizontal about us and one another. So when we take part, when we share this meal, that is what sharing a meal always is. It's a sign of our fellowship together in Christ. And that's what they've got wrong. So take a look at verse 18. He says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. Now, something about that doesn't make sense, doesn't it? When you come together, there are divisions. When you gather, it only emphasizes how scattered you actually are. And that is shown all the more in how they do the Lord's Supper. Now, they did things very differently to us. Uh, In all likelihood, church was in someone's house. Uh, The Lord's Supper wasn't so much necessarily part of a service as part of a meal, And I've been part of churches where uh, they do things like that sometimes. It's it's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, Sharing good food around the table. And then when there's a natural lull, making sure everyone's glass is topped up and there's bread to pass around. And we take the moment to pray and think and share those things. It's It's a wonderful end to a church meal. But in Corinth, not so wonderful. Let's read verse 20 and 21 again. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Now that is a mess, isn't it? They've got people starting before everyone's arrived. We've got some people who've brought a sort of hamper from Harrods and they're tucking in in the corner over there. Other people hadn't realized this was going on, hadn't brought anything. And they're not invited over to join in with the nice hamper. They're just left hungry. This is not a bring and share lunch, is it? There's no sharing. In terms of the actual elements of the meal, some people are getting no bread at all. Imagine if we said that, we just sort of go, right, you guys, no, you're not having the bread today. Some people have got so much wine, they're actually drunk. That's not the Lord's Supper. That is, that is a free-for-all, when it's supposed to be a sign of unity. So take a, flick a page back, chapter 10, verse 16. And hear how the meal here is, is described. He says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. There's lots going on there, but it's a sign of unity, isn't it? Often the meal is called communion. That's from this verse. Participation, communion—that's the same, same word. That idea of communing with God and communing with each other. And it's that second part that Paul's got in mind. Back in chapter eleven, verse twenty nine, he talks about discerning the body of Christ. They aren't failing to recognize the bread. They aren't failing to trust in Jesus. They're failing to acknowledge the church. That's the body of Christ. This meal is a communion. It's a community family meal. And so if we do that, we're expressing unity with one another. And if we eat that while at the same time mistreating one another, that's not the Lord's Supper. That is, in the words of verse 27, to eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Taking it in an unworthy manner, it's not about your posture or what you're wearing or doing it in a certain way or or things like that. It's about living at odds with one another. It's about splitting into haves and have-nots. It's about demeaning each other and pretending that you're not. Whoever does that will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is really serious. That is kind of, if we're reenacting the night of Jesus' death, we're casting ourselves in the role of Judas the one who betrayed him, or casting ourselves in the role of those who attacked Jesus, not in the role of the disciples trusting Jesus. Trivializing his death, making light of it. It's really serious. In their particular church, Paul says, God has been disciplining them with various people getting sick and some even dying. Now, I don't know how he knew that was what was happening. I'd be wary of making the same sort of connections today, but it shows how serious it is, doesn't it? should make us reflect, are we living out the unity that we profess, that we proclaim when we eat? Are we cultivating that unity or undermining it? Are we despising the church of God? This is a church-wide thing and a deeply personal thing. So on the personal level, this is a call for us, isn't it, to work hard at our relationships To show up, to talk, to forgive, to drop grudges, to not gossip, to avoid divisions. Those are things we need to think about and work on. But it's a whole church thing as well. If there are things we do that don't help, let's change them. That's what Paul is calling them. He's saying to them, look, the way you're doing communion, you need to change how you do it because it doesn't help. So, verse 33, very practical. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Stop rushing ahead and not waiting for each other. Do it together. Okay, they had to change how they did it. Or verse 34, very practical. Anyone who's hungry should eat at home. Now, this is how churches develop the tradition of the Lord's Supper not being very supperish. Uh, no offense, this, isn't, this doesn't look much like lunch, does it? That is a very small piece of bread, little thimble. And that came from trying to follow verse 34, communicating this isn't dinner time. You can do that at home. And if you can't do that at home, speak to us and we'll share with you. This is a time for reflecting on Jesus and what he's done for us. But it is possible to go so far in that direction that that it's too far. So it can be possible when we make it less like a meal, we can make it less like a family when we get our own little bit and eat in silence. Is that communicating our togetherness or just me and my relationship with God? It might be worth exploring other ways of doing it, but even within this way, let's make eye contact sometimes as things are passing around. We don't have to stare at the floor. We can make more of that moment when we wait for each other to take it all together. So whether you're at the front, you get served first, and then you've got to wait. Or whether you're at the back, sort of going, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Reflecting, thinking, and maybe praying for those people ahead of you. Because the Lord's Supper is a sign of our unity, not just our individual faith. So pulling it all together. Verse 28. I think this is the big application here. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. That's the big thing. Am I, am I coming at this in a worthy manner? It's not asking, am I worthy of what Jesus did for me? Because I can, I can tell you now, no. We're not worthy of it. It's all grace, that's the point. I said last week about baptism. Some people delay baptism because uh, they don't think they're good enough and I said that's a bit like saying I'm too dirty to take a bath. I suppose people, some people might not take communion because... I'm just too aware of my need. I'm sort of too hungry to possibly eat. I'm too sinful. But for those who know they need a Saviour, this is an open invitation, isn't it? And in Jesus, there's food for the famished, drink for the parched. We're invited to feast on Him precisely because we're starving. So we're not worthy, no. But are we coming in a worthy way? That is saying, am I responding to His grace? appropriately so let's check have i understood what jesus death means let's check am i trusting in him let's check am i living that out in loving relationships and if not let's sort it out in a sermon like this you might think well the application is going to be take the Lord's Supper, and that is how many of us are going to uh, uh, apply it, but the application might be for you not to take it. It might be as we've been thinking about these things, you think actually I, I, my faith is not in Jesus' death. Well in that case, this isn't the meal for you. It would be saying something you don't actually agree with, so just pass those things on and reflect maybe on what's going on. The application would, I suppose, be believe in Jesus and then by all means join in. It might be as you examine yourself, you're suddenly aware. Actually, there are relationships, particularly in this church body, that are not right. I'm behaving in ways that undercut that unity. Well, let's put that right first. Let's not presume. Let's make it a matter of priority. There might be some people who reflect and go, actually, yes, I should take part in this. This is for me but you haven't been baptised. Now, we don't have a rule on on that. It's not like you must do one before the other, but it's just worth reflecting. After what we heard last week, if I'm willing to take one sign of belonging, why wouldn't I take the other sign of belonging as well? Something to think about. But for the rest, who do believe in Jesus, who are trusting in him, who are not perfect, but are seeking to live at peace, Welcome to the table. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for these signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper, these signs that point us to Jesus, point us to our salvation. I pray that you would help us to read the signs, to understand them rightly, and live out those truths together. In Jesus' name, amen.